crypto is might might not want legacy media's you know eyeballs and and peering coverage into it it needs some of us who are exposed to that world to be able to give balanced coverage not just anti-crypto pro-crypto but looking at it objectively again my main goal in covering this space is going behind the scenes to the officers with the devs you know at the offices of the projects to see what's really going on welcome to a bit cryptic podcast where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency now it's time to get a bit cryptic Howdy, Kryptonauts. This is Jeff Peterson. And Alain Leon, a.k.a. Bitcoin Van Gogh. And today we have a special meta episode because we are with award-winning journalist and crypto media guru, Adrian Bashik, who produces CNBC's Crypto Trader, the world's first global crypto and blockchain broadcast TV show. Adrian has reported and produced various news series documentaries for CNN, MSNBC, Discovery, Vice, and the New York Times, and the Weather Channel. He was also a combat journalist who covered basically all the wars in the Middle East. He snuck into North Korea, spent a week with Chavez behind the scenes in Venezuela, spent time in Guantanamo behind the scenes, and basically has done every cool thing you can imagine. Adrian is a BAMF, and if you don't know what that means, you should probably just Google it. So we are super excited to have you on the show today, Adrian, and welcome. Welcome. Good to be here. Excuse some of the background noise. We're here at Soho House after a blockchain meetup, so we're on scene, which I like to be in. Yeah, it's very it's very you. <laughs> In the field, always. In the field. Always. So, first thing I want to ask, you know, you have so many interesting stories and in, in history. I just want to get to hear a little bit more about your background. Could you could you tell us a little bit more of, of what I kind of hinted at in the intro? Yeah, I mean, I, I am a journalist. I've always been a journalist and in production. I knew that I was going into documentary filmmaking and news from a very early age. And the main reason was to be a witness and to see things firsthand. I always hated doing any sort of debate, political debate, et cetera, growing up without having firsthand access or knowledge. And access is power, right? So going into the news, I started out at the local ABC station in Miami where I grew up. I grew up here on Miami Beach, Florida. Then I went to CNN very early on, spent some time there. And then I helped start Current TV with Gore. They gave me a shot and I then went and was based in Jerusalem and covered the Middle East for five years. Every major conflict, Iraq, the Lebanon War, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, the Arab Spring, and then branched off into Asia and covered China in depth inside. I was I snuck into North Korea. I had more about that later. Southern Thailand, etc. So, I wanted firsthand access to all these events. Crypto then took a turn a long time later after I came back to Miami, was working more on the doc side and series side, got into crypto personally. Fast forward after the bull run, my buddy ran at CMC Crypto Trader. We had met here in Miami and needed a partner to really run the show when they were in the field. His partner with CNBC Africa, Rob, had really started the studio component and then I was able to kind of run and gun and handle crypto and go inside in depth behind the scenes with the founders 
and the projects in crypto. And that's what we keep doing now. So the way I understood it there, you sort of had a traditional journalistic background and you had sort of a personal, you got into crypto personally, and then it kind of meshed together into something they were looking for. Exactly. I I did have the, the traditional media route with ABC and CNN, some of the legacy media companies, but I was always kind of a, a rebel and a renegade. And with crypto personally, that then led me to another path with CNBC and producing the crypto show. I wasn't your prototypical network correspondent or producer. I, I was always in the field, kind of a one-man band almost, able to shoot report and edit because I didn't want any spin and I didn't want anybody kind of editing my my vision and my views of what I was witnessing in the field. So it was always kind of a, a different path that I was walking anyway. So you, you wanted more creative control. You were tired of being a lackey, being told what to say and what to do essentially. In a way, which obviously it kind of vibes with the whole crypto community that I'm not anarchic, so to speak, but there's this decentralized theme without editorial control, let's say, that I was always striving for. Sure. That makes sense. And before we dive into crypto, I'm just really curious, would you be willing to share one of your most like interesting stories you've had maybe as a correspondent or like, I can't even imagine some of the stuff you've seen or, or, or heard. I mean, three quick things. My first time in the Gaza Strip we're going to interview Mahmoud Abbas. This was before Hamas took over. And we turn a right. We had a, a driver. We take a corner and then bam, there's, you know, 10 masked Fatah members who were just kind of members of almost the, the color guard. And yeah, they had masks on and we got shook and we thought there was something there. But our driver laughed at us because they're kind of literally the color guard, you know, <laughs> that, that fear struck me yeah. immediately. Secondly, my first time in Iraq, we got sidetracked. I missed a flight from Beijing to Istanbul, so I was late and had to fly across from Istanbul to Diyarbakir and then drive from southeastern Turkey in the disputed Kurdish territory to Erbil in northern Iraq overnight, eight hours under the cover of darkness with no lights on to evade any potential you know, kidnappers or whatnot along that crazy road. How, and then, how many gallons of sweat did you, <laughs> did you let out during that drive? I, I was actually able to sleep. I'd been in plenty of conflict zones before then. Okay. And I was so actually you, able you're to used to that. This, this yeah. is easy for you. There was no gunfire you could hear. So it was yeah. easy. And then one time we definitely went into North Korea, pretending to be, have some sort of Thai American business interest. And we were able to go on this tour for 50 Americans we kind of snuck in some cameras and we put them in a bag of oranges because it's customary to give your guides, your state minders in North Korea, food or citrus from the outside world because there is no citrus there. It's their delicacy. So, I had a burlap sack of oranges, put the big camera in there, approached the, the airport entrance off the plane and the guards were so excited to see the oranges that I started tossing them out that I put the burlap sack on the on the outside, outside oh of the metal God, detector <laughs> and then went through myself and put all our, our luggage through and then picked it up and nobody noticed. So, I was able to sneak in a, a big camera and get some pretty transcendent yeah. shots that hadn't been seen before. That's – I can hear the clanging of your balls from here though. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's playing with the devil right yeah. there. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, okay, let's talk about crypto now. (laughs) And before going to that, I I think crypto needs a objectivity and some journalists who came from legacy media, even though crypto is might might not want legacy media's, you know, eyeballs and, and peering coverage into it, it needs some of us who are exposed to that world to be able to give balanced coverage, not just anti crypto, pro crypto. But looking at it objectively, again, my main goal in covering this space is going behind the scenes to the officers with the devs, you know, at the offices of the projects to see what's really going on. And that's if you watch the show from April onward, which I I, I was happy to be involved, you can see that, that we're literally looking at code in the project's offices. Well, one thing I will say is that your actual war experience probably carries over very well into the crypto world. Giving it's financial a, warfare, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and sort of a lot of the political wars that have been going on, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and everybody taking sides. So probably some of that carries over. What is your take on that? I wish there was less infighting. And I think we've got to have crypto in, in general, if, they, if it really wants to succeed moving forward, as what it was envisioned to be, which is not supplanting the financial system, but an alternative financial system for those who, let's say, don't have the means, the credit, the history to participate in legacy banking. There's no reason why there shouldn't be an alternative asset class for them to transact, pay, get paid, and invest in. So it is financial warfare in a sense, but I wish there was less infighting for sure. Yeah, you you bring up a good point. I mean, this panel that we just saw earlier, which obviously the audience didn't get to listen to, but we were talking about, you know, how places like Venezuela and I'm sure a lot of places that you visited, a lot of financial instability where this can really be a force for, for like financial stability for a currency that can allow people who have a currency that is currently maybe worthless or inflating so much that it's like worth less than literal toilet paper. This can be a saving point for them. So um, it, it, it's a hedge. It is a, a rescue and, and a place where people can put more trust on a distributed ledger. Sure. I've been to Venezuela. I've been to countless developing countries. You hear a lot of panelists on a lot of talks throw out countries like Venezuela and Zimbabwe. How much time have they really spent? How much, you know, transacting have they done in that local currency to be able to speak to it from an expert perspective so i was i spent weeks in venezuela for example leading up to a referendum and was behind the scenes with with chavez for a week the second week i was out in the hinterland and on the border of colombia watching venezuelans smuggle out gas and canisters to colombians and you know earning that that premium and i would have to go back and forth under the cover of night across the border to just change bolivars to colombian pesos and the exchange rate was just astronomical i would get like 7000 bolivars to the dollar i would have a bag full of just worthless bolivars but it was so big to then transact over the border to get back in dollars to then earn that premium and be able to pay for hotels and drivers and the upcoming flights and everything because everything was in cash. Even American credit cards in Venezuela wasn't, weren't working. So I've seen that on the ground where people can really be helped with that hedge and that store of value. Now, one of the things that happens a lot in the crypto world is that they sort of get typecast in a way 
a lot of the times you you'll hear the first thing you hear when people talk about cryptocurrency is you know the black market or drugs or the silk road so what would you say that the media gets wrong about blockchain and what are some of the things they get right well i think that was a a, a long time ago that black market every day that perception keeps being washed out i think the more institution institutional involvement that we hear participating in crypto the less that reputation persists which i think is an okay thing is institutional involvement that this narrative of popular crypto has been talking about and and waiting for is that necessarily what the vision of those who designed the blockchain and Bitcoin. And I say those because we don't really know, right? I hate to quote, quote unquote, Satoshi Nakamoto, because maybe that could have been seven people. Maybe that could have been a consortium. We don't ex- actually know. But that vision that was that was put forth, is this institutional involvement really what they're, they were striving for? Maybe, maybe not. Paper Bitcoin, is that a thing that's going to recess the market? Is there price suppression going on? So, I really caution against disavowing the roots. However, I don't think that that black market stigma still really persists, at least in popular culture anymore. So, you mentioned that you as a show with your crypto trader show, try to focus on like the really, really like the root of what people are doing. You look at actual code, which I love by the way, and, and I love bringing on coders and the actual developers on the show because they're at the meat of what's happening. I feel like they have the, the deepest understanding. A lot of us not to hate on you, but a lot of us people who aren't actually doing the code don't fully understand it in the way they do. Absolutely. So, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, what do you think goes into making a good interview show? Obviously, getting to the meat of the people who understand it best. And we're kind of asking a little bit selfishly because, you know, we want to we want to know too, like what, what makes a good interview show in your opinion, especially as it relates to crypto? Well, for us, and, and let's work backwards. So, our we're kind of on downtime until the new year, luckily, because we were, we've produced 48 episodes this year, the rate of which we were putting out content, an hour-long, feature-long content. Ran Neuner, Crypto Man Ran on Twitter, for those of you who know, started the show in partnership with CNBC Africa, which is the you know ground zero for what crypto can really affect change in right across the continent of Africa. It's not CNBC US, it's not CNBC Asia, not CNBC Europe, it's CNBC Africa, which I think is a, is a good thing. So we air on CNBC Africa on Mondays at 8:30 for example and then we put the show on YouTube after that. And a lot of the, you know, inside crypto insiders do watch the show, participate in the show, are interviewed on the show. I think that we work overtime and Alan was up for 36 hours before this working props to you because we've been there and done that on a weekly basis putting out as much content and information as we can a good show let's say working backwards one of our last big shows was from ETH DevCon in Prague we were there with 4,000 devs led by Vitalik and the team and the Ethereum Foundation announcing ETH 2.0. What was most fascinating about the entire weekend was going out into all these breakout sessions. They had about 12 different rooms of breakout sessions with different devs across different tracks. Privacy, scalability, you name it, and they were all getting on the same page for Serenity, for ETH 2.0. This was like an army of devs all sitting on their computers, all learning the next 
revolution in Ethereum. So that sort of ground zero access, number one, is my main goal to showcase and to really highlight and let viewers see the building that's going on. The whole Biddle phase is almost like a catchphrase. No, it's it's happening. People, you know, invested in all these protocols and these projects in 2017, early 2018, regardless of whether some projects didn't transfer their ETH into fiat and whether or not they've burned their runway, there is building and we're showing that. So for us visually on a TV medium, that's what we want to show. Makes sense. And and for the audience members who aren't familiar, when he's talking about people raising money in ETH and burning the runway, a lot of companies are in big doo-doo right now because they raised money in Ethereum, which like all cryptocurrencies has had a volatile last year. And some of the companies I've worked with, for example, have like gone from having multiple years runway to just now a few months. And so this is, there's like a definitely a palpable air of like stress, you know, at some crypto conferences now because people are trying to figure out what they're going to make their next move as. But yeah, I mean, we were in Singapore for Singapore Blockchain Week and we went to the offices of Kyber, spoke to their founder and CEO and Ryan, you know, asked him bluntly, how much ETH do you have left? And don't quote me, I believe that they raised 80,000 ETH or 160,000 ETH. I can't remember which one. We can go back to the episode and, and look. And they have kept half the ETH and they had converted half the ETH. That was two months ago. So, I'm not sure what they've done since then. But those are the sort of numbers that you're looking at across various different projects. So, as you say in your show, you're focusing on the build part. And during this bear market, a lot of that is going on. There probably wasn't that in the last bear market, there, there was almost nothing going on. But to sort of throw you into a juxtaposition, right? Because there are a lot of people that are caught in this bear market and they are having to make decisions. Some of them are wondering, you know, is crypto dead? Is Bitcoin dead? I like to bring up Mike Novogratz. You know, he's very famous uh, Bitcoin bull. We've had him on the show a number of times, yeah. Exactly. So he went out there on a limb and he said, you know, Bitcoin is bottoming at 6,000. You know, now you have somebody like Tone Vase who went, he's famously known for going short at 6,000. And now we're, we are where we are. Not to give some prognostication, but is there something that a newbie or somebody who's wondering, you know, is this it? Can Is there something that you think that they can use to guide themselves into, into whether this is the end or it's not? or we've hit bottom or not in general terms, not, you know, the exact bottom, obviously nobody knows the bottom, but, you know. Is this the end? That's what, you know, crypto critics have been saying for a number of years. Every time the market has gone down, that's what, what, what they've called it. Is this the bottom? Again, we don't know. If you look at the charts and, and some, some classic bubble charts would show us kind of near there, maybe, and then it could be a slow long rise, just like the internet bubble in the early 2000s. But so, you saw a big spike and then you saw just a long progressive rise, not a huge spike right away. A lot of the crypto community has been asking, okay, this event is going to cause the next bull run, the next bull run, the next bull run, the next bull run. It could be long drawn out and it could be a long steady rise. That's maybe what I would personally kind of think would be on the horizon. Just to ask a little bit more on it. Is there something like you were like you would say, okay, right now we're, we're seeing you were talking about, you know, Ethereum 2.0 and all the development that's going on behind that. Is there, would you say that because of the development that you've seen, 
not to put words in your mouth, but hope that you don't really see this as the end or, or do you, or, you know, just just something a little bit more specific for somebody that doesn't know anything. I think that you are going to see a cross pollination of every traditional industry use blockchain in some sort of way that will lead to mass adoption across various industries. Yes, there are going to be, you know, private enterprise blockchain solutions, IBM, you know, developing with a consortium across Hyperledger, for example. That's not something speculative where crypto investors can participate in, but there's no reason why, you know, supply chain management, NFCs and authenticity trackers, obviously banking is not going to grow steadily over the course of the next decade. I don't see it as that. I just see it. Uh, I see it a long, steady growth rate based upon adoption. So you're you're behind the scenes. You're seeing the developers. You're seeing all these projects, and you're. What I'm getting is that this is not going anywhere. As a technology, absolutely not. And an investment in- interest. Again, I, I question the role of institutions and the need for institutional investors earlier, just according to the the possible views of the founders of, of, of Bitcoin and, and that vision, but there's no reason why any educated Wall Street institutional type doesn't see the opportunity to diversify into the asset class if we're specifically talking speculation. And up to now, that's been the, the primary use case of various cryptos, right? But with the funding that has come in in the last 18 months, you're going to see huge scalable growth projects emerging one after the other. So, speaking of huge scalable growth projects, I mean, you've obviously interviewed a lot of interesting folks. What have been some of your favorite interviews or some of your favorite groups or people or projects that you've interviewed and why? Michael Arrington is definitely a favorite on the show with XRP Capital. He tells it like it is. He even, you know, as right before San Francisco Blockchain Week, he was announcing that he was subpoenaed by the SEC and he's not investing in any more US-based projects, strictly Asia. I mean, he was just given his, you know, bottom line, hardcore take on where we are regulatory-wise. A buddy of ours, Jeremy Gardner, he says some incendiary things, but he also tells it like it is. And he called... The bubble at North American Bitcoin Conference last year here in Miami, he called the top essentially. So, so just to give a little background on those two for people in the audience who aren't familiar, Michael Ayrton is the founder of TechCrunch. And do you want to explain a little bit about XRP for the, for the newbies listening? It's a fund and we've had a lot of funds that have popped up in the, in the last year come on the show. A lot from Asia. We were the first to feature Hashed out of Korea, for example, FBG Capital out of China. Arrington's XRP Capital, for example, they invest in early stage crypto startups and they used XRP as a hedge to move in and out of their various crypto holdings. He just called it XRP Capital. It's not connected to Ripple. He's not an XRP maximalist. (laughs) The means to an end. Yeah. And then Jeremy, you can explain. And Jeremy Gardner, we, we actually had him on the show a little bit ago. He created something called Crypto Castle which is essentially, I don't know if I'm explaining it perfectly, but it was it was kind of like a house, kind of a live-in incubator kind of thing for 
Bitcoin and, and crypto, crypto and blockchain, crypto and yeah. blockchain folks. And, you know, he, and he was co-founder of Augur, the Augur platform, and started the College Blockchain Network when he was in Michigan, which brought together a lot of college students in the early days of crypto. He's an OG. Yeah, he's 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 one of the old school crypto people, very successful, big-minded person, and, and, and one of the, the people who is leading in the space for sure. So, when he talks, people listen. So, yeah. And you're going to say a third person? We've had Hashed and their cohort of different projects on numerous times. They, I would argue, are one of the top and leading voices out of Asia and especially Korea. So anything that they're looking at, anything that they're seeing and helping develop is forefront in my mind to pay attention to, to follow, and definitely give them a lot of credit for some of the growth and development out of Korea. So what is Hash exactly? They're, again, another fund based out of South Korea. They help develop Icon, Ontology, Cork Chain, a number of leading projects out of Korea. Yeah. I, I still remember when all the, the Quark Chain hype was happening back a few months ago. Everyone was, was going crazy over Quark Chain. So, and you also have to understand that a lot of these funds are, you know, some of the motors powering this 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 new crypto ecosystem right now that they have stepped back. They're not helping fuel big ICO raises, but they're getting in on the equity stages of a lot of upstart projects. So there is yet another generation of some interesting crypto projects, but they're they're going right to the funds and raising their own capital and they're doing it by equity raises, which is different than the ICO model. And again, for crypto purists, maybe that goes against the model that we should be advocating and trying to follow because we want the democratization of wealth, right? So let's see what happens. Yeah. Although I can tell you from personal experience, having been on the inside of a ICO that raised $15 million, you know, that shit was wild. And there was so much like craziness, like we're flooded by people trying to scam people and like lit- literally thousands of people in our Telegram chat and just it was like the wild west it was it was crazy so i can understand like why people want to regulate this and a lot of people are losing money so it's like this you know this catch 22 where you you don't want to regulate it too much but you also don't want to regulate it too little cuz either way you fall other side and you kind of lose so it's- regulation is a whole other topic yeah. which we can touch upon officially uh, if you want to go there, but not, not we, sure. we've had a lot of lawyers in the yeah. show, so we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll save that. We'll yeah. table that. Uh, my my one comment on on regulation is, I would love to do an episode in DC because again, the the episodes that I produce with CNBC Crypto Trader are all the field ones. Ron and the CNBC Africa team and Rob, who's the EP there, do an incredible job in studio and bring on all the influencers and Pomp and and Roger Ver and just names across. The crypto spectrum i focus on the episodes in the field during the different blockchain weeks the different conferences and highlight the projects that are in those different cities so i'd love to do a washington dc episode and get potential regulators congressmen and get their their thoughts and take and see if we can make a u.s push for favorable i don't want to say favorable but just balanced regulation in the space yeah i think i think that'll be something that a lot of especially crypto entrepreneurs are really interested in hearing about as well as investors. Cause this is such a murky thing that 
you know, I know companies that are not even bothering doing ICOs or raising anything cryptocurrency related. They're just doing strict equity raises or they're just they're doing cryptocurrency raises, but just avoiding the US. And so if if we get this wrong, this is, could be a big, big hiccup in, in what could be in ter- for development of the crypto industry in the US. It, it totally can be. And as you said earlier, you had somebody that once they got once they heard the knocking from the SEC, they said, that's it. I'm not dealing in the US anymore. Yep. And there's probably quite a few people in that same scenario. You have people like CZ, you know, famously saying that he doesn't want to touch the United States and so on and so forth. So it's an issue. Yeah. Yeah. The long arm of the law doesn't extend to some of these crypto entrepreneurs that can be global and can be elsewhere and can yeah. be in Asia. But what's Asia going to do also? So we'll see. Uh, so we're, we're getting close on time here. Do you have any closing thoughts that you want to leave the audience with before we end the show? You know, I I would hope that people are involved in crypto for all the right reasons. Mine was philosophical in nature to begin with a hundred percent full tilt nonstop, or I should say full stop. And that was the belief that we could have a democratization of wealth where there's no intermediary controlling you know your finances your credit worthiness your ability to participate in the legacy financial system i mean i know people and who aren't able to open up bank accounts for example i know people who have to take out payday loans to make ends meet. And even that process is daunting and interest wise. Just our credit system where we're in a credit bubble and we get, you know, the the worst of the worst get hit with the highest and highest of interest rates. So there's got to be an inclusionary alternative for us all to participate in that can maybe reset. Like if we can hit the reset button and take where we are there is a looming recession on the horizon with our debt bubble and our, our our trillions in assets that we're underwater in. Maybe this can be the catalyst in terms of crypto could be a catalyst for a reset button for so many people to participate in the next wave of financial inclusion. So you still see crypto as a savior that it was made out to be in the beginning. I hope, and that's where I put my philosophical belief in. And I'm no soothsayer, and, and I don't know if government is going to over-regulate it. I don't know if paper Bitcoin on Wall Street is going to suppress it. I don't know if people at large and, and the specter of mass adoption is going to be capped off, and we won't get that mass adoption. And I don't know if institutionals are going to play in the space and then walk away. So I just know that philosophically, there's got to be a better inclusionary model for us all to generate wealth in a way that's not beholden to this legacy system that we're built upon. So basically, crypto is a second chance. I think so. Hopefully. Yeah, the potential is there. If we, if we don't fuck it up, if we do it right. <laughs> yeah, Let's cross our fingers. And I, I like to ask this of a, a couple guests. What are some of your favorite resources to to learn more about crypto? I know you're kind of a hands-on, so I'm assuming you're going to say in person. But what would you recommend for people who want to learn more who are listening? Obviously, our podcast and your show, CNBC Crypto Trader. <laughs> Anything else you'd recommend? I think crypto Twitter is one of the better ways to stay informed up to the minute. I don't know about their in-depth analysis. I think 
following the right mix of people from, let's say, a CZ and a Crypto Man ran all the way to the various traders and shit posters, as they like to call themselves <laughs> sometimes, I think you get a good mix of crypto viewpoints that you can easily decipher where you see the market is going. So crypto Twitter in general, I think is the best resource in real time. Very cool. Yeah. Where can people find more about what you're doing? Subscribe to the YouTube channel, CNBC Crypto Trader. Like I say, I, I stay behind the scenes. I'm not big and active on Twitter. I observe. I'm not big and active in social media. I'm just a witness and deliver the communication objectively. I really do believe in kind of being behind the scenes. I, I correspond on some things in terms of blockchain use cases on the show, but I'm not. I'm just not big socially. So check out and subscribe to the show. Right on. And we'll link that up in the show notes. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Adrian. It was super cool having you on. And I would love to just have a show picking your brain of all the crazy war stories you have too. Yeah, it's <laughs> such a good show. Yeah. Maybe when we go on to AI and then we can, you can decipher in there. You Perfect. Go. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Cheers, y'all. Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. A Bit Cryptic podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor-in-chief, Dang Du. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening. And remember, keep it cryptic.